Would you turn to Genesis chapter 12? That's where we are going to be beginning today. We're looking at chapters 12, 13, and 14. We are not reading all of them. I'm going to do my best to summarize them as we go along so you can keep up with the historical timeline of what's taking place. Previously, what I've done is I've summarized or we've read and we go through this long introduction, right? And then we recap at the end. Well, today's a little bit different. We're going to just kind of go through the historical story here and uh, apply this idea of God most high as we go through. And our conclusion will be our communion. Um, today we are actually introduced to a brand new name of God. You remember our study in the first few chapters of Genesis, we saw a couple new names for God, and then we started looking at the characteristics and the nature of God. And now today we get back to a brand new name that's introduced to us. Now remember, before we introduce this name, you have to remember a couple things. When we see a new name in Scripture, it is not one Man designing a God to be worshipped by just adding all of these impressive things. So it's not a design by man who's creating a God that's cool or impressive. Okay, that's not what this is. And it is also not God becoming bigger and better over time as we go through history. It is, however, man recognizing the depth and the majesty and the complexity of this almighty God as God interacts with his creation and as he oversees and cares for his creation. So don't get tripped up that there's these new names and don't let it, think, don't let it cause you to think that, well, God must be changing or man is creating a God. No, God is so deep and complex that man is always recognizing more depth and complexity of who he is. And so when we see the name introduced in Genesis chapter 14, it is an indication of the complex, impressive Almighty God. The name that we see in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18, is El Elyon. And what it means is highest exalted one, the sovereign ruler over all. And you might be thinking, wait, I thought we talked about God's sovereignty two weeks ago, and we did. And remember what Pastor John said, it is such an enormous topic that we can't squeeze it into our lifetime even. And so today, this idea of the most high God absolutely touches on his sovereignty. And so there's going to be some aspects of today that are just like it was two weeks ago, but as applied to this story or this history in 12, 13, and 14 of Genesis. El Elyon is the highest exalted one, the sovereign ruler over all. He knows no bounds. The authority of the Most High God transcends boundaries between nations, between heaven and earth, between spirit beings and physical beings, between angels and demons, and between humans and animals. His authority and dominion span time and distance alike. There is nothing and no one within an infinite universe that does not fall within his domain or his jurisdiction. He is El Elyon, the most high God, the strongest strong one, the possessor of heaven and earth. 
That's who we're dealing with. You have to remember that God is not just just an overseer of, of someone's life or one person's life. He's not just an overseer of a family line or a period of time. He is the most high. And so he is in charge of all of the universe and all of its contents over all of time, all the time. That is the God that we are talking about. That is the God that is revealed yet again in Genesis 14 and going back into Genesis 12 and 13. Acknowledging God as being the most high God is not a small thing. Because as a result of acknowledging that he is the most high God, you must believe that his word then is authoritative. You see, without acknowledging that God is the most high, then you don't acknowledge that his word is truth and the only truth. You wouldn't be able to acknowledge that it is the guide for ethics and morality. It is the guide, his word, he gave us as the most high God because it's complete and authoritative. And so it's not just a small thing to say, well, of course I recognize he's most high. Or what's the big deal if I think that there's something else out there too? This is a very big deal. And it carries into all aspects of your faith. And so if you believe in God, but you struggle or you can't acknowledge him as the most high God, El Elyon, then you don't believe in the same God that's shown in scripture. It's that big of a deal. And so when we look at it today, we have to know that we are here and God is somewhere way up there on the authority structure. It is his and his alone. And so that is the name that we're introduced to in Genesis chapter 14. Before we get into Genesis 12, I want to bring you up to speed on our timeline of where we're at. And we have to remember that we've already learned that the Most High God has a plan. We were introduced to his plan when we first started this study in Genesis when he created. He doesn't just do things unintentionally or without a purpose. And so he created, which means he has a plan. So his plan, you remember in Genesis 3, when he said, I'm going to send someone to crush the head of the serpent? This big redemptive plan is being played out throughout all of history. He had a plan when he provided Seth to Adam and Eve. He had a plan when he cared for Noah's family in the midst of wiping out the rest of mankind. He had a plan and a purpose. He had a purpose and a plan in the Tower of Babel that could have been looked at as a negative thing, but he knew that it was his name that needed to be glorified because he is the most high God. And in order to best accomplish that, man needed to be scattered because all they were doing is uniting for selfish reasons. And it was his name to be made famous, not man. And so God, the most high God, has a plan. He acts intentionally. He doesn't need man's direction. In fact, man needs his direction. Man needs everything from God. We've seen already that God has acted in his plan as an expression of mercy and grace and love. He's expressed his worth and he redirects mankind so that they are properly recognizing his worth. So in the timeline, since the Tower of Babel to this new person in history that we're going to be introduced to today, Abram, there were 325 years that have gone by. So remember, last week, God scattered, right? 
He took people from the tower and he said, that's not going to happen that way. I told you to go into all the earth. So guess what? You're going into all the earth. He made it happen. Now, 325 years have passed. So generations are going. People are creating cities. They're establishing roots. They're growing. They're actually establishing um, rulers. And those rulers are appointing armies. And so we see the world growing to a point where maybe we would start to recognize it. There's armies, there's division, there's, there's communities and things like that. Over 325 years since last week. You thought it was only a week. It's been 325 years since last Sunday. <clears throat> the Reformation Study Bible summarizes it this way as we introduce to you the, the person of Abram. With Abram commences the story of God's creation of Israel, a story in which he will reveal his freedom in being merciful to Israel his holiness in judging them, his faithfulness in restoring them, and his absolute sovereignty over human history. Abram's story begins with his departure from a city of man, the city of Ur, in search of the city whose designer and builder is God. That comes from Hebrews 11. So we're introduced to Abram. His name means exalted father. You might go, that sounds an awful lot like the name of Abraham. Very good, it is. It's the same person. Later on, when God really finalizes that he is going to be the father of a multitude, he changes his name to mean exactly that. Father of a multitude is the name Abraham. That's what it means. So when we speak of Abram today, and there's some sources that I'm going to read that use the name Abraham, same person, just different point in history after God changed his name to Abraham. So that's where we are in the historical timeline. As we look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3, I want you to recognize something. I'm going to read it, but I want you to recognize that this most high God has a plan, but now we're going to see that he is always true to his plan. He promised to send a savior. He promised to redeem mankind, and he will do that. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3 says this, now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what we see here is a great promise from God. But what we see in history is that Abram is traveling with his wife, Sarai, who later will be named Sarah, so no confusion there. And he was traveling with his nephew, Lot. So they were going all over. Studies show that Abraham, or Abram, traveled a total of 1,500 miles, which for some of you, if you drive truck, you're like, I do that all the time. But they didn't have that back then, Right? Can you imagine walking with a whole group of people 1,500 miles all around the Middle East? That's a long journey. But Abraham did it. Abram did it. In his travels of that 1,500 miles, he acquired much wealth. He acquired many possessions. And he had people that were following his group. So he had quite the posse, if you will. Lots of possessions. He was a very rich man. But what we see in, in the verses that I read is God establishing a covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. 
God said, this is what I am going to do. I'm going to make of you a great nation and I will bless you. And notice what he says. I will make your name great. Does that phrase ring a bell at all? Do you remember last week in the Tower of Babel when the people said, let us make a name for ourselves, right? Who is making a name in this verse? It's Almighty God. It's El Elyon, the one who is the most high. Mankind is not in charge of making a name for himself. It's prideful. It's arrogant. And God scattered them. But here what we see is someone of faith, Abram, saying, Lord, I'm going to do whatever you tell me. And God in his covenant says, yes, I am the one who will make your name great because I am in charge. And so right away we already see, even before the name is introduced in Genesis 14, 14, an acknowledgement that he is in charge of it all. I will make your name great. Something important to understand about this covenant, it is, an, it is an unconditional covenant, which means that God is going to accomplish it. It is not dependent on man's works or his merit. Now, John Piper mentions something very interesting about this topic. He actually says in one of his articles, he says, I don't know why people, and I'm paraphrasing, get hung up on this idea of conditional versus unconditional because it's possible to even have a conditional covenant that's guaranteed to come to fruition because God is most high and he's sovereign over all things. A.W. Pink des describes God's sovereignty as a ship. His plan is moving towards its destination, while on the ship, mankind is able to make choices within these boundaries of this ship, but it doesn't change the direction. And so John Piper notes, that's possible. So don't get hung up on whether you think it's unconditional or conditional. God can state it even with condition, and it can still happen because he's sovereign over all these things. He will accomplish his plan. But for our sake today, I believe it's an unconditional covenant because I think that if God promises something right here and it's introduced to us without any conditions, the very first presentation of this covenant, which we just read, is presented without conditions. You can't keep adding conditions after the fact. So in its first time, it comes with no conditions. I believe that anything after this, later on we'll see many mentions of this covenant, and each time it seems like there's something added or there's a condition to it, I believe those need to be interpreted very carefully. That those conditions presented later should be viewed as a response to this gracious covenant that God has blessed mankind with rather than a condition that the covenant needs to have met. That's how I believe it needs to be interpreted. So as with God's redemptive promises, human merit is not the cause. It is not your works that makes God gracious to bless you. It is God in his very nature as almighty and most high God who says, I will bless mankind. I am a gracious God, and it's not your works that cause it. It was not anything that Abram did to earn God's grace for his great name to be made famous among the nations. Abram did nothing to earn it. It is purely an amazing God who is gracious and loving. So it's not about your merit. 
God's blessing notice from this covenant is to all who believe. It is not to a particular race or a particular group or even a particular location. And you might say, wait, what about Israel and the Jews? Isn't that a place? Isn't that a people? Yes. That just so happens to be the place and the people that God was putting his redemptive promise and his plan on display It was through them in a central location of Israel, in a particular group that God said, this is how I'm best going to display how great of a God I am and how much I love all of mankind. But it wasn't limited to them. It is how he chose to express it to all mankind. And a reminder that it is not based on works. The works that flow from the grace or the faith that God gives us are not to earn anything but they're an outpouring of our love for God to serve him and to worship him. As a recap, this Abrahamic covenant did three things. It was a promise to make Abram a great nation and to bless him and make his name great so that he will be a blessing to bless those who bless him and to curse those who curse him. And all the peoples on earth would be blessed through Abraham. Second thing is it was to give Abram's descendants all the land from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates. Later, this land came to be referred to as the promised land or the land of Israel. And the third thing it did is it was to make Abraham the father of many nations and many descendants. And it gave the whole land of Canaan to his descendants. Those are the three tenets of Uh, the Abrahamic covenant. And so what we see here from that little bit of three verses is that the most high God is always true to his plan. But then as we continue into chapter 12, we see that the most high God always accomplishes his plan. He doesn't create something and that, or have a plan and then mankind does something in his free will to confuse God and then God has to scramble or God has to figure it out now. God always has a plan because he is the most high and he always accomplishes his plan. So what's happening here after God gives Abraham this covenant, we see that famine had led them to Egypt to dwell. They decided, you know what, we have to ride this out somewhere else. So Abraham and his followers and everyone with him went down to Egypt. Now, this troubled him. You can read this in chapter 12, but this troubled Abram because he had a beautiful wife, historically speaking, is what we see. And he was concerned because he knew that if he walked into Egypt with a beautiful wife, that they would kill him and take her as their own. And so what did he do? He lied. And he said that his wife was his sister. What ends up happening? She doesn't have a claim on her because she's not married, right? He didn't really think this lie through. Not saying you should, but didn't really process what was going to happen. And so what happens is Pharaoh says, she's beautiful and she's not attached to anyone. She's mine now. And he took her as his own. And as a result, he treated Abram very well because Abram just gave him a beautiful wife. But the plan somewhat backfired. But remember, God is always going to accomplish his plan. And so what we see is that even though Abram lied and even though, even though now his wife was taken by somebody else, God causes distress and plagues to come upon Egypt 
And they knew that it was a result of this lie, that Sarai was actually his wife. And so as a result, Pharaoh says, wait a minute, why did you lie to me? Why did you do this? And he kicks them out of Egypt. He could have done probably a lot worse, but he kicked them all out of Egypt. He said, take your wife and go. I want you to think back last week to the Tower of Babel and the people said, we don't want to travel all over the world. We want security and we're going to find security in this city. So we're staying put and we're building a city. And God said, no, I'm disrupting that plan. And now we see Abram, who was just given the promise that he was going to be blessed by God. He was going to be the father of all the nations. And his response to that was he followed his fear. And he said, I'm worried. I'm choosing security over God's plan. Now you might go, that's really harsh against him. He lied. God is a God of truth. It is against the very nature of God himself to do anything misleading or lying or any sin for that matter. And so Abram, in that moment, he chose security, just like the people of the Tower of Babel. Can't we relate to that? Think about your daily life. Are you overcome with fear? And so maybe you change your routine for that moment because you respond to fear instead of responding to faith? Maybe that fear doesn't lead you to lying, so we've already begun to justify it, like, yeah, but I don't lie. But what does that fear cause you to do? Because it can be real powerful. It can cause doubt, and it can cause you to question who Almighty God truly is. You could use fear as a defense mechanism. It could change your attitude to be negative. It can do all kinds of sinful things. And in this moment, for Abram, it caused him to doubt God's plan because he chose this security. I don't want my wife to get taken. I don't want to be killed. Now you might go, that's so justifiable though. That's exactly what the subtlety of Satan wants you to think. It's justifiable. Who wants to be murdered? I should lie to get out of this. We can relate to him, but we have to remember that is an offense to a holy God. No matter how big, no matter how small, no matter how much we think we can justify it. Is God sovereign over that situation? Yes. Is God most high? Yes. Is sin allowed for us so that we can stay safe? No. What about, is sin allowed so that I can be comfortable? No. Is sin allowed ever? No. God is the most high God, righteous and holy, and all sin, no matter how justifiable, is an offense to him. And so what we see here is that even in the midst of Abram turning his back on God in that moment, God says, I'm going to accomplish my plan. And he gets them out of Egypt and he allows them to travel back home. And we see that traveling in chapter 13. In the first seven verses of chapter 13, we see that the Most High God provides his plan, or provides for his plan, and he provides for his people. So after Egypt, after they get kicked out of Egypt, Abram and all of his people, his big group, including Lot, they went back to the place where Abram had originally set up his tent in what we would say is modern-day Israel. And he built an altar to God. 
But due to their travels, due to their success as businessmen, they had acquired, both Abram and Lot, his nephew, they had acquired a lot of wealth by this point and a lot of possessions. And what we discover from reading chapter 13 is that they could not dwell in the same area. The land would not support all of the stuff that they had. And I say stuff, I don't mean it in a negative way. They were just successful people. But the land could not support both of them living there together. And so what ended up happening is the herdsmen from each person, Lot and Abram, they began to quarrel and bicker, and there was a lot of stuff going on between them. And Abram put his foot down and he said, we can't have this quarreling among us. It has to end. We need to serve a higher power rather than serving ourselves. And so we have to go our separate ways. And if you look at verse 4 of chapter 13, it says that Abram, in this process, called upon the name of the Lord. It doesn't mention that Lot does the same. And so begins the story of Lot and his falling away from God and God's purpose. We don't want to read too much into this one statement because historically speaking, we're not at a point yet where we know the end result of Lot. But because we know the end result of Lot, this verse, verse 4 of chapter 13, brings on a whole new light. It says that Abram looked to God. Abram trusted the Lord. It doesn't say Lot did the same. And so what we see as a result of this is Abram and Lot stood here on a hill in Israel looking out. Now, Israel has like a nice big ridge running down the middle, and then there's the Jordan River Valley, and then over up here is the West Bank that's nice and high. And so if you stand right above the Jordan River Valley, you can see all over. It was impressive. I got to ride a camel there one time. Camels are weird, by the way. But I got to ride a camel in, one of the, in, the, in a location very close to that. And when you stand there, it is desert I mean, as sandy as you can possibly imagine and dusty and dirty and over the horizon, you can kind of see down into the Jordan River Valley and it is green and it is lush and it looks beautiful. Abram and Lot stood in a similar place and they looked out and Abram says, Lot, you need to choose the location of where you want to go. You can have first pick. And Lot, it says in verse 10, lifts up his own eyes and he chooses what looks pleasing. What do you think looked pleasing? The Jordan River Valley, right? It was lush and it was green and the grass was greener on the other side of the, the valley, right? So he chose that. Abram, however, waited. And in verse 14 of chapter 13, it says that Abram waited on the Lord to tell him to lift up his eyes. God actually tells Abram, lift up your eyes and now everything that you see as far as you can see is the land that I am going to give you. And so very quickly notice, where should your eyes be and who should be in charge of your eyes? Lot lifted up his own eyes. Abram let the Lord direct his eyes and it put him on the blessing of Almighty God, the one who is above all things. So the challenge here is to keep your eyes on the most high God. But Abram lifts up his eyes and he sees northward, southward, eastward, and westward. God says, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring. And immediately after that, 
God reminds him of the covenant that he made. And he says, I'm going to make your offspring as the dust of the earth. Now, standing there where I just described, the dust of the earth looked really massive. All you could see in that one spot was sand everywhere. But God doesn't say the sand that you can see. He says the whole dust of all of the earth, if you can count that, then your offspring can be counted. So this blessing takes on a bigger, bigger depth, doesn't it? Because God is saying, I don't do things small because I am great. I am the most high. So even everything you can see beyond that and then beyond anything you can imagine and then even beyond that, I am God and I will accomplish my plan and I'm going to provide for you and I'm going to make sure that my plan is taken care of and it will always come about. It will never be thwarted. And so Abraham is reminded of the promise of God as he as we wrap up chapter 13. So then what happens? As, remember, 325 years have passed. There are towns, there are armies, there are rulers all over the world, but geographically speaking, in this area of the world, what we see here is that the Most High God blesses his people. So kings of that particular region began uniting and they were waging war. And so as Lot went down into the valley near Sodom, near Gomorrah, then you had Abram setting up his tent and his cities up on the top in the dusty, sandy area. While that is all established or while they are establishing their area, the kings of that region started to fight. There started to be war and it was a war-filled time in this area. During one of the battles that was occurring down in the river valley near Sodom, where Lot was living, Lot was taken captive. And there was one person who thought, you know what? I just escaped from that battle. I need to go tell Abram that his nephew was taken captive. And so Abram gets a report from someone that says Lot was just taken. And Abram had a choice to make. He could have said he chose his own path. He went down there. He's not trusting the Lord. I'm going to turn my back on him because it's his own fault. Can anyone relate to that? You ever had feelings like that about someone? It's their own fault. They made their bed. They get to sleep in it, right? Abram doesn't do that. Abram says that's family. That's someone that God created. That's someone who has value, who has worth, And so I'm going to do what I can to go rescue that person. And being led by the Lord, Abram, remember his eyes were on the most high God. He knew what he had to do. He assembled 318 men. Very specific number. Why is that important? Well, these armies that had been battling around there were not comprised of 318 men. They were much larger and they were much stronger. But Abram can assemble 318 men, and he does, and he goes all the way north in what we know as Israel, even all the way up to Damascus, and he defeats the army with his small group of people, and he takes Lot back, and he rescues him. Very small army, very big problem. Does that remind you of one humble servant named Jesus? who came alone in his very small, seemingly, manger and lived a life to tackle this big problem of sin for all of mankind, Abram does 
something great. As a man of faith, believing in the most high God, that this small force could overpower this large army who had seen success throughout that whole part of the world. But we also see after this in chapter 14 that Lot is continually falling further and further away from God. We already said there was no mention of him looking to God. He starts by moving himself near the city of Sodom. And you know the history of Sodom and Gomorrah and what they were involved in and their later destruction. But Lot starts to move near Sodom. And then later in scripture, we see that he moves into the city of Sodom. And then even later in scripture, we see that he becomes a respected citizen in the city of Sodom. And so we see his deterioration further and further away from God, but it is a slow process. No one in here, I believe, no one in here is going to wake up tomorrow and suddenly become a murderer. But I do know that sin grows and it grows and it pulls you deeper and deeper and deeper over time, which is why it's so important to have your eyes on the Most High God all the time. And even though Abram lied because he, risked, he didn't want to risk his own security, his eyes were still on God and he corrected and he knew who he was supposed to follow and his heart was desiring the ways of the Lord. Lot didn't have that. And so the challenge this morning is, what is that slow fade in your life? What are those small compromises that you know God's truth, but yet you say, but I have to be comfortable. I have to be safe. I have to do things the way that make me feel good. And that is a subtle lie from Satan because that slow fade will take you down a path that you don't want to be on. It is only by following Almighty God, the Most High God, that you won't have that slow fade into sin. So what we see is that the Most High God blesses Abraham in this process. He rescues Lot, he protects Abram, he accomplishes his plan, and within God's ultimate plan, Abram did something helpful to someone else and God blessed him. But as we wrap up, we are introduced into a character in Scripture, and I say character, um, not as a, as a false character. He is a man of history that is confusing at best. There's not a lot of information about this person that we see in chapter 14 because after Abram wins this battle, arrives back home, he meets someone who brings him bread and wine in celebration. It is a uh, priest. His name is Melchizedek. And Abraham is blessed by Melchizedek. Chapter 14, verses 18 through 20, say this. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. There's your El Elyon for the first time in Scripture. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And so what happens is that Abram is blessed by a priest of God Most High. And Abram's response, if you continue reading verse 20, it says, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So Abram tithes. 
But wait, tithing hasn't even been established yet. That's because tithing isn't some box that you check and it's, a, it's an expression of your heart to God who is God most high, who is always worthy of our praise, who no matter what is going on, he and he alone is worthy. And out of an expression of our heart, we give to God. We see Abraham doing that. There was no law established. There was no one breathing down his neck to say, you better do this this, it was Abram saying, I love God most high and I will give of what I have to him. And he says it's a tenth. And so what we see here is this mysterious high priest, Melchizedek, blessing Abram and Abram giving him a tenth. But what Abram responds with in verse 22, he says, he swears his oath to this same God most high but he says, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high. And because you are students of scripture and we've already determined what Lord with all capital letters means, we know that Abram not only responded by saying, I lift my hands to El Elyon, I lift my hands to Yahweh the most high. And it's this confirmation back to Melchizedek that says, we serve the same God, not just God most high, but a personal, relational Lord, my Savior, Yahweh. That's what Abraham says. So there's no doubt as to who they're talking about. It's not two different gods. It is the same God. This is a confirmation that they serve the same God. And so who is this Melchizedek? Well, we know he's a true priest of the true God because a pagan priest cannot meaningfully bless Abram. It would have meant nothing. And Abram can also not tithe to a depraved priest of a false god. So we know that they must serve the same God and that Melchizedek is a real servant of God. His name means king of righteousness, and that term Salem, he was the king of Salem. Salem means peace, so he was the king of peace. There's two different views on this, and I'm going to very quickly summarize this because it's also controversial, and I'm not avoiding it, but I'll let you decide for yourselves through studying. There's two views on who he was. One view is that he was a pre-incarnate son of God, so this was an appearance of Jesus Christ as Melchizedek. The other view is that he was a type of Christ. Don't let that freak you out. Adam pointed us to Jesus. Noah pointed us to Jesus. So they were a type of, meaning they pointed us to the ultimate Messiah. Those are the two views. Hebrews 7 tells us about him. Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first... Melchizedek, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother in his genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. How confusing is this guy? He doesn't seem to have a beginning or an end. He's going to reign as priest forever? Does that sound like a man? No, it does sound like a pre-incarnate Jesus, doesn't it? But notice some of the description. He's actually described as like the Son of God, not as the Son of God. He is also described as a man. And if he was a man, he obviously had genealogy, right? He didn't just exist. It just wasn't 
indicated in Scripture. Not everyone's genealogy is written in Scripture. It doesn't mean that they don't exist or they didn't have a beginning or they didn't have a father or a mother. But there's mystery surrounding this Melchizedek because Melchizedek points us to the greatest high priest, Jesus. The mystery that surrounds him should remind us that Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, no beginning, no end, the one who will sit on his throne forever, he is the most high, high priest. He is the greatest high priest, Jesus. So while there must be confusion around Melchizedek, it's not meant to cause a stumbling block. It is meant to get the name of Jesus in your mind. It is meant to get you thinking that Jesus is the most high, high priest. The strongest strong one is Jesus. And so what we see in closing is that the most high God sends the greatest high priest, Jesus. Without beginning or end, he's going to rule as priest forever. He fulfills all of these things perfectly, Jesus I have three passages from the book of Hebrews as we lead towards our communion service. Hebrews chapter 4 tells this about Jesus. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us, And with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet remains without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 5 mentions the name Melchizedek when it says that Jesus, you are high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Did you know that there is never mentioned again this office of great high priest after Melchizedek until Jesus. No one else fills that. And it doesn't mean that Melchizedek was Jesus. What it means is that Jesus takes over and fulfills all of it perfectly. No other priest will ever need to be appointed because Jesus Christ is the greatest high priest. And in Hebrews 7 it says this, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like the other high priests, to offer daily sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of others. Since Jesus, the great high priest, did this once and for all when he offered himself as a sacrifice. And Hebrews 9 says this, By means of his own blood, Jesus' own blood, shed on the cross, his body nailed there as the perfect sacrifice, by his own blood, he secured an eternal redemption for mankind. So Genesis gives us the name El Elyon as the highest God, the most high God. But even all the way back in Genesis, We see that details point us to Jesus Christ, our only Savior. As we celebrate and we remember his sacrifice, I'll have Pastor Evan come and lead us into our time of communion.